What's up, boss? This is Abraham's wallet. We span the gap between the austerity of obedience to God and the prosperity rising from faithfulness. Run your home and your dough like a biblical boss. Mark, there you are. I remember once long ago, I was at a lake house that was borrowed. Somebody yes. lent me a lake house for a day, and you are at a lake house that's not borrowed. And I like the, what is that? A, what are those Scottish ponies behind you? I don't know. I was, thinking, thing? I was thinking about that. This kind of a yak, maybe. Yeah, something like that. There's a yak over my right shoulder today. Uh, there's a giraffe print on the futon. Okay. This is kind of this is the study exotic. Space. I'm I'm podcasting today from Eden, Utah. Eden, Utah. Uh, we took a week off of work for the most part and went up here, and we have been at the beach. We have gone boating. Beach. We have well the lake beach. This That's this right. lake is nice. Because it's full of sandy beaches, but okay. uh, we've done some some boating. We've done some golf. We're going mountain biking tomorrow, so just kind of a hangout here. Week we made some copious amounts of fajitas last night for friends, and it's been a nice little. It's been staycation. a big suck, suck, suck success. Yes, I would say so. Okay, good. I wouldn't say it that way, but I would. No, say no, it. most people wouldn't. Well, this week, my daughters have been at a church camp. Oh. And um, honestly, it's kind of funny because uh, we've been saying among ourselves, it's the most worldly environment we've exposed our children to all year is this. It's a huge church camp deal. And, uh, I, you know, what's going to be there? I don't know. But from my side of things... It's been pretty wonderful because I don't think my wife and I have ever had four nights in a row in our own home together with no children. And so we have been, we've gone to the pool together at night, grilled burgers. We went to a movie last night. We saw the Crawdad movie that all of the ladies are talking about because they all read the book and they're so uh, excited to see the movie. And uh, we've just kind of been uh, date life for a week. And I felt, I felt a little naughty doing that, but it's been terrific. It's been great. That's awesome. They come back yeah. today and it'll be, don't tell them this, it'll be bittersweet because we're thinking I could do two more days. And, but we're happy to see the children. Yeah. It's funny because I think I, I was sitting around with one of my buddies last night and I shared the How to Grandparent podcast with him. Okay. Which, if you haven't heard, please go hear it because... got to listen to that. And Amelia and I have been talking about this lately because we've gone on a couple little trips without kids and you do get into that mode of, man, this is nice. And we said, <laughs> if you want to be a skilled roll up your sleeves and help grandparent, you cannot permit yourself like years of the the non-childed life which the, means once my kids get to be 18 and 16 and 14 I'm gonna have to find other ways to interact with little kids my sister just had a baby and so we had all her tiny ones and I was like man this is hard <laughs> and I have medium-aged kids, right? But yeah. going back to the little babies and diapers and all that, that was like, wow. And so I think you're right. It's delightful to have just adult time. And yes. we're going to have to find a way to make sure we don't have too much of that or you can end up off in you know, typical baby boomer land where you say, I'm just going to come visit the grandkids twice a year yes. and mostly spend my money on yes. you know, whatever. You got to uh, stay so in practice. Yeah. So I'm glad for you. I'm, I'm excited about, did I, I might've already said this, that I booked our family vision summit for this year. No, it's not until November, but it will be happening in Hawaii. And oh, pretty excited about that. Wow. So, 
Yeah. Well, that, that idea of keep the little kids around so that you can keep your skills up and your tolerances low, I think that uh, dovetails with what we had said with the critical path uh, part one, which is as a single man, don't get too comfortable being single and don't let don't uh, luxuriate in getting to run your life just the way you want and building it all around you. The same thing can happen in grandparenting. Um, and you get into the into the state of being where you don't want them to mess up the stuff in your house and you don't want to have to travel and it's so, it's so out of your way and you gotta yeah. you gotta you gotta stay limber. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you could probably just say, don't get too comfortable, full stop. <laughs> that's probably a fair. Yeah, that's that's probably fair, regardless of your life stage. So yeah. I like being reminded that the luxuries that we enjoy, such as you and I, a thousand miles away, talking to each other instantly and seeing each other on video like this, the luxuries that we enjoy normally right now are something that Louis the 14th couldn't have dreamed of even the quality of clothing that we have our automobiles. They're just, we live on the, the highest end of luxury ever known by humanity. And sometimes we can get lulled into thinking if we don't have the best of the best of the best of all of our friends, we have something to complain about. And, uh, as you say, it's wise to maybe introduce, a little bit of discomfort into your life because we're so used to automatic instant pleasure and comfort. Yeah. I, I think voluntary, voluntary pain is one of the, the surefire medicines for a lot of ailments in the human condition. So we could do a whole episode on that. There's a book called the comfort crisis that is really popular right now. And it's a secular take on the same notion that you will just sort of gravitate towards ease and comfort and it will ruin your life uh, on some level and you won't ever really know it. Uh, Do you know who Peter Atiyah is? No. He's a doctor. I heard him the first time on Joe Rogan's podcast, but my wife is a mega, mega fan of this guy. She listens to every podcast he puts out. Oh, is he like Mr. Ivermectin? Uh, no, okay. he is about longevity. He's been like an ultra, ultra, ultra long distance swimmer and a competitive weightlifter and all these different things. And he these days is interested in what he calls the centenarian Olympics, where he said, I just came up with, I don't remember 10 tasks that I wanted to be able to do at age 100. Okay. And then used what we know about the rate of decay of the human body to back into if I want to be able to lay on my back and get up off the floor at 100, here's what I need to be able to do at age 50. And because if you can do these simple tasks, like lift a 30 pound weight up to your shoulder level, he's thinking, I want to be able to lift a grandkid up to my shoulders. Well, that's like the equivalent of being in the top 1% of the top 1% of physical condition for a 100 year old. So you have to kind of back in and it's very interesting, but it just, he, he's like, I'm no longer trying to deadlift, uh, you know, 700 pounds these days. I'm doing all these different things that I think functional, functional, functional fitness. Yeah. Shout out to our CrossFitters. But I think that's interesting and it's all it's all tied to the same stuff we're talking about which is that left alone our bodies as well as our willingness to endure any form of discomfort they just kind of get they get comfy in kind of tricky spots i i was spending time with some folks two two couples who were the same age one of whom spends a lot of time just doing fitness stuff at age you know 70 the other of whom does not get off the couch and there looked to be 25 years difference Mm. in age between the couples. Yeah. Yeah. We could, we could talk physical fitness all the time, but I think this is, um, I think we're warmed up. We have (laughs) reached the end of the on-ramp. One thought is that we didn't, we didn't mention, we're trying to fold, you know, financial, uh, 
maturing along with just growing up as a, as a man. And so I would say that, that, uh, in the 10 to 15 range, it should be normative that you're opening up a savings account, that you're putting money aside. You should be learning at that age, the simple, the simple uh, things about spending, saving and giving that should be, that should become normal to you. And there should be a savings account of some kind in place. By the time you're 16, you should definitely have a savings account in place. I don't care if you're a multi, multi, multi millionaire family, you should be developing this skill in your children that they understand the value of money and what it's for spending, saving and giving. The other thought that I had was I'm thinking again of a 17, 18, 19 year old young man who's listening to this and he thinks about his family goals. And he thinks about the stage of life where he should be considering um, a trade and a career path. And how does he, he might be asking, how do I find those things? And how do I invest in a career that actually supports and, and buttresses family building as opposed to careers that oppose them? And there certainly are careers that oppose um, the, the time that you should be given to family. So I want to plug here a friend's book. Rory Groves has a book called Durable Trades, and he's You've identified it at least 10 times on the Abraham's Wallet podcast. Well, for, you love we're it. We're talking to people who have uh, never heard of it before and are thinking in these terms. Durable Trades names, I think, 57 different career paths that are particularly amenable and helpful to family building and they're multi-generational. That is to say you could open a business framing houses and easily pass it on to your children. So I throw that in as a resource. All right, now I'm ready to move on. Step six in mm -hmm. the Abrahamic path, mm -hmm. the, the critical path, the critical mm -hmm. Abrahamic yeah, path, critical path. <laughs> to greatness. Uh, what is it, Stephen? Well, if you think that you've uh, got a trade that you're at least tinkering with, I'm thinking you're at least an apprentice headed some direction. You've got a good woman at your side. The next move is not buy a house. The next move is not join the local country club. The next move is have children. Do that early and often. That's my recommendation. Learn to, uh, in, in the process of raising children, it goes right along with what we we're talking about um, regarding denying yourself and denying endless comfort and luxury, is that when you have children and you have many children on a string, you learn to, you learn to happily, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that wistfully, wishfully, happily, or at least carelessly die to yourself because it just becomes part of life that you're dying to yourself. You're dying to your schedule. You're dying to when you want to eat food, the kind of food that you want to eat, whether you have a uh, your entire schedule to yourself. Well, you don't. So it's really good for a man to see as early as he can th to start learning that your entire life runs through the needs of your home and that your, your, your opportunity to work, for instance, there's a relationship between the amount of time that you can give to work and the amount of time that you can leave your wife with this string of kids. Now we've taught, we did this when we talk about large families, there, there is a tipping point with the age of your oldest child. And particularly I would say like the age of your oldest two children, when they become sort of junior parents and they're helping the process. But there's definitely a seven year window in there that is really tough on a marriage. It's really tough on a, on a man. It should be, you shouldn't be dumping all that stuff on your wife. And she's the only one that gets up at night. She's the only one that gets up in the morning. That's not the way that's supposed to work. I just think it's really important in character development. We're talking about living a life that honors the Lord in the, in the process of being conformed into the image of the Son of God, which is your destiny. This 
this repeated act of dying to myself that my life is for others. I give my life to others. That's a very important thing to learn. And if you could learn it at age 20, it's much better for you to learn at age 20 than at age 35. That's right. Because ruts get dug. And if, if you can learn this and then you're doing this by the time you're a great grandparent, Hey, you, you, I guarantee you've got a legacy of godliness. So our, our, our number six, our recommendation is start having children. It's really important not to hand wave chaos in the home, even when children are little. So um, I spend a lot of time with a lot of families. Some of them operate totally different from mine and are going swimmingly and others you go, wow. And so don't say, well, this is just, we've got little kids, so our home is going to be completely chaotic and all the time, not restful. I think your goal in this phase is what you said. I always tell people when when they're having their first child, I'm like, the first 12 weeks are like fully fog of war for any new baby that you add to a family. Do not have any expectations or requirements for yourself or your your baby just survive. Yeah. I talk to a lot of families that just sort of say, well, we've got four year olds that, you know, they just can't sit at the table for a meal and blah, blah, blah. And so my quick path to make sure you don't end up with a chaotic home that will make you miserable and will make this whole thing way less enjoyable is that we've said this a bit a million times, but number one, once you get past actual infant stage, your job is to train obedience into children. If you don't do that, you cannot do the other stuff. I I was talking to a sweet young couple last week and they were just struggling with, Hey, we've got like obedience stuff. We're trying to work through with one of our kids and they're very, they're very strong willed. And it kind of came out that every time there was a violation, this kid the parents felt like we need to explain our our reasoning and really oh, give yeah. this kid a good case for why they should obey. And I said, I think you guys have great heart. If you stepped back and looked at yourself, trying to talk to a two-year-old, talk them through every reason for why you just told them to do that, you would go, man, I kind of look like a psychopath. I wish I had had kids so much earlier than I did. Yeah. We were the chuckleheads who waited for five and a half years before we had kids after we got married and looking back, we're like, we would have had more kids. Of course. But we were just living this life and thinking, well, we're going to get our careers established and it was dumb. And it's probably my biggest regret is that. But one of the excuses I hear is, well, kids are very expensive. Kids actually don't have to be, that expensive, especially early on. Yes. You can absolutely incorporate a child, a baby into your family in a one bedroom apartment. And you, you know, you may have heard diapers, things like that. I guarantee you going back to our kind of harping on budgeting, we can find money in the couch cushions, the, the, the proverbial couch cushions of your budget that yeah. will cover the costs of a baby. And if you legitimately can't afford it, there's even, there's even aid and services that will help you afford it. If you are just busting it at a $12 an hour job and that's all you can do, there's, there's actually resources out there that can cover some of the costs that you might not be able to afford. So forget any sort of godliness or spirituality. You just want to build a family. There's two things you need. One, you need a great wife. And two, you need children. So we can't underscore enough the fact that having children is the treasure. And that's what we're building off of is we're building a family culture. Why are you building a family culture? Because you're going to give it to children and your children are going to have children. So anything that makes us hesitate as you as you illustrated with your story hesitate to have children is dumbheaded it's wrongheaded psalm 127 3 children are a treasure from the lord they are a heritage offspring are a 
offspring are a heritage from him. So we, I don't know anybody who has waited five years to have children who, who then says, I'm so glad that we had five years alone as a couple. I've never heard that. I've always heard children are such a blessing to us. Um, I, I wish we hadn't waited as long as we did. So number six is yeah. pretty, and I well, will be, yeah. Let me just chip in really quick. There was this Twitter thread going on this week with a bunch of financial planners. And somebody said, man, what if you, how much would you be willing to sacrifice right now if you could have guaranteed security in retirement and long-term purpose? And these are all people who don't know the Lord as far as I know. And they were just going back and forth. Yeah, man, this... I'm starting to think this retirement thing is a is a sham and uh you know I might not be taken care of and I just chimed in gently like this is why multi-generational family teams are the way mm-hmm. because it's de- God's design that the family is where all of this stuff happens purpose even financial security for you yeah. like the idea that you would be a completely self-sufficient old person is kind of stupid that yes. you, you know you would go hire some nurse to come to your house and your so that your kids can go run off and and do disney vacations uh, when you're in your 90s like no that's not how it's designed so yep. anyways if you gave me the choice to to say you can either have a big financial inheritance for your three kids or you can have almost none uh, I'm still going to have a little because we're going to obey the scriptures, but and have a whole bunch more kids. I take the kids every time. Of course. Of course. And that actually would be a move that made my life more secure, not less. Yep. That's right. Sorry. Go on to point six. That's or great. Point seven. I, I would just re- refer. Uh, that's That's a challenging thing that you just said, and it's true. And I, anybody who's, who, who is taken aback at that statement, I would just, I would just take you back to five capitals and go, which is more valuable, um, lives and relationships or money. And I know which is more valuable. It's, it's people. So now you've got yourself a herd of kids. You you got yourself a, a wife, kids. Um, we assume that your, as the needs of your family increase, we assume that you you are going to be growing your career to meet those needs. At the beginning of my uh, married life, I look at what God has put into me and my wife, and I go, "Who has He made us to be?" Let's start walking that way. Then you find yourself with a handful of teenagers, and you go, "Wait a second, uh, these guys are creating a lot of ballast in this in this home." Now we need to redraw the lines. It's me and my wife primarily. And we also have to redraw those lines around who, what has God put in the hearts of my children? What are their spiritual gifts? And we have to, we might have to adjust those lines to say, this is our family vision. And it might be more weighted towards um, caring for a third world country, people in poverty. uh, If that's what's on the hearts of your children. Well, that does fall in line with what me and you had said, honey, about what we want to be our lives. But it sounds like this is kind of the thrust for us. And you redraw those lines again. I'll say it again, that the vision is so broad and so robust that none of your children want to leave it. Now, it might be the case that as they grow up into adulthood, as they find their own path and they find their own spouses, Okay, they're gonna they're going to have a vision. They might not even think in these terms, but they're gonna have a vision that's about the combination of who they are with their spouse. But what they have built in your home, it must be the case. This has to be a, a goal of ours that our children would never repudiate what they uh, receive from us. That um, what does the scripture say? Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Well, then that's the way that we should be planning and dreaming, that our children won't depart from this path that we have set out for them. And I'll throw in here that I assume that the people who are listening to us and are trying to actually do this, 
there's going to be such a strong family identity in these families. I'm willing to bet that the culture of the families that we are building will be stronger than the families uh, that we that our children marry into. Maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. I hope your your children find spouses who exceed your own vision and giftedness and and resources and all that stuff. But my expectation is that for our our tribe, our Abraham's wallet people, if we're all building families this way, we should be ready to absorb our children's spouses into our family vision. Much the way that we've seen Johnny recently, we will have put up uh, episodes about Johnny Phipps and how he has attracted his uh, children-in-law and brought them into his family vision because that's what I expect for everybody. So I, I think that that heartstring tying that happens when your children are three, four, five years old, that continues in different ways up through their teen years because we're we're building these bonds that we expect to last multi-generationally. Yeah. Yeah. I it's interesting because we were hanging out with a family up here yesterday, and my eight-year-old was off playing with their son, and it was perfectly pure, innocent and also, I was like, man, I love having my daughters be connected to other kids that are coming from families that also are, have set out a vision and are trying to train their children into kind of some of the stuff we're, we're doing. It was the first time I thought, well, wow, what if, what if my daughters were bought into our family way of doing things enough that they actually sought out guys who also came from that type of family. That right. would be cool. Yeah. The only other thing I'd say on this one is you're going to get kids, like you said, that maybe have slightly different takes or angles on things um, or talents that you and your wife don't have. And it's your job to step back and look at them and go, huh, why did the Lord give us that? And yeah. how does it serve our assignments as a family? And so I think that you like you said you have to evolve the family vision or you risk losing their hearts if they don't see how they fit into it if you yes. too narrowly define here's what we do you know we are a missionary family that's what we do well little johnny he feels like he wants to be an investment banker right. and you know he doesn't have a love of money in his heart but this is where he's talented and gifted Johnny's like, why well, I don't belong in this family now, right? Because I'm not a missionary, right? And you and would so, have to it would be, it would be, uh, the onus would be on the father uh, primarily to to come up with a way to say we are a family that invests. I mean, I'm making this up off the top of my head. So we invest in these missionary people. Johnny, you're investing and helping people do it with their money. See, we're all doing the same thing in different ways. You're part of this team. I think that's really important to to never let the giftedness or godly dreams of your child be in competition with what you are expressing as your family vision. You should edit the family vision. Of course, we're trying to edit our children's hearts, the things that they fall in love with. We want them to be in line with the kingdom. But if they are, don't be staunch about your vision. I'd say redraw the lines um, so that you can you can create a context where he feels like this. I am I'm doing I'm about my father's business. Realize that when your kids are in those teen years, you're competing with the whole world, and you're competing with the stories that they're hearing in other homes. And yeah. I firmly believe we're telling a story that beats all the other stories. We just have to tell it well. I'm going to I'm going to push the accelerator forward here a little bit and just uh hit a couple of these pretty quickly but the next step um once you have kind of got this family vision established and you've got something to put gasoline in uh is to faithfully build wealth in your 30s through your 50s and you know we could just say it's not it's not that complicated. It's live below your means and make sure you put your money that you are accumulating because you're living below your means. So there's extra. Make sure you're putting that to work so that it grows. 
just at the highest level, this is a lot of what we talk about when we do money episodes, but at the highest level, a 7% boring rate of return on your money can make you very, very wealthy (laughs) if you are willing to give it time. It's not particularly exciting for a year, (laughs) but 7% compounded over 20 years um, makes you a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And don't don't think at this even if if you're maybe i'm 30 and i'm hearing this and i've got my kids and i've got my family vision and i've finally got maybe a good job you don't have to swing barry bond style for the fences financially you you could very easily settle into a plan that says well it looks like i'm gonna have wealth by the time i'm 60 if i stay on this this path so Put a pin in that for a second. Be like the ant. <laughs> Work while it's summer. Put money away and grow wealth little by little. Um, step two to we making this happen. about all that, by the way. Everything you just said. That every just phrase I uttered was a separate episode that we've yeah. made. Grow your expenses at a slower rate than your income. So like I said, my wife's a doctor. We run with doctors. A lot of them, they go from making peanuts and having massive piles of debt to making lots of money. And what you see is just a an equal or even sometimes greater increase in lifestyle, which is why the big joke is most physicians don't end up with generational wealth, even though they make plenty of money to make it happen. They're less likely to have generational wealth than somebody who worked at a much lower income, but was really good at saving. Yep. Um, so this looks different for different people. I usually tell people when you get an increase in income, whether you make more in your business, you get a raise at your job, whatever it is, it's it's um, thoughtful and wise to think how much of this are we going to put aside and kind of we're not spending that extra. Some of it will be, hey, we're going to do more generosity than we've done before. Some of it should be, we've talked about this, go celebrate. Um, the, you should you should spend money to encourage kind of, or to just thank the Lord for what he's done. Yeah. However, some of it uh, you should put away and say, this is money that we're going to invest in the 200-year plan, not the 40-year the plan. So... Lastly, just a shout out to our friend Jeremy Pryor. He he says has been talking about something recently that I just think is really wise. And it's I think it's a great goal for every father by the time you hit your mid 40s to have total control of your schedule. And this doesn't mean it's it's an imperative. You don't have to do this. You might be listening to this and you're like, well, I am a doctor and I'm not going to be able to, you know, be 100% in control of my schedule. I'm not, we're in different places. You might be doing all sorts of things, but it's a good goal, especially if you're hearing this at age 22 to think, right. what kind of work could I do that would put me in, complete control of my schedule by the time I'm in my mid forties. That tends to be the time if you're on this path that you're actually the most needed in your family's life in order to orchestrate all the stuff we've been talking about and guide. And you start to take on a very different role than you had when your kids were two and you were just trying to keep them from killing themselves. So that doesn't mean you have to go start companies when you're 22. It could be extremely wise for you to go work for people. Uh, we talked about that earlier in episode one, but accumulate skills and knowledge and even financial capital. But at some point, Jeremy talks about three businesses that fathers should consider starting. One is a freedom business. And that's just the business that breaks you off of needing to show up for you know eight to five every day at an office. And that can be a whole bunch of things, but having a business that allows you to um, be in control of your schedule doesn't have to be something that could blow up and make you a bazillionaire. Um, Number two is the scale business. Some people will do this. Some people won't. 
But the scale business is a business that you can scale up. So this might be a business I could grow and add employees and it scales really nicely. And this could create generational wealth. And the last one is a legacy business. So Stephen, we've talked a little bit about, there's a family in Cincinnati that uh, has a banana business, right? The Chiquita Banana Company. Yeah. That is a business that scaled to massive size and then was passed down from father to son to, to lead. And that's how they've done that as a family business. That's very rare. It's not normal that somebody's able to scale a business and then they happen to have a son or a son-in-law who is the perfect leader for that business. So oftentimes, the wealth that you pass down through business assets will not be the business that you built and scaled if you do scale a business. Similarly with the freedom business, you know, I'm a financial planner. I would be delighted if my children want to be financial planners or if their spouses do and take over this business that, that I have, but that we have, but uh, I don't think that I'm counting on that as the way right. that wealth be transferred in my family. So right. three businesses that every father should think about. Anything else on building wealth in your 30s through 50s, Stephen? Just to ask on that on that point. So the the freedom business is just something that that gets me out of working for somebody else, and I can work for myself. And and are you saying that it could be a one man operation, the freedom business? Yeah, and a lot of times what I see is dads go, "How am I going to start a business? I've been." an engineer for a big company for my career so far. And then they go, well, I could, I could consult. I could do what I do at my company, but work for myself. Yep. And that would increase my freedom. It may not actually, it may not even do a whole lot more than that. It may generate similar levels of income once I've factored in benefits and things like that. Um, but I will have control. I can be geographically flexible. Yes. Whatever is important to you. And that's totally fine. That's a good outcome as kind of a st first step into business ownership and, and bringing work into the household a bit more. I have a couple of friends who are CPAs and they spent years being embedded at a corporation. And then they thought, well, I want to be in control of my own schedule. So they became kind of CPAs for hire. And so they kind of work for five to 10 firms. They just found people that needed that work ad hoc. So they, this is now their career, but it's not something they don't want to create a CPA firm that's got 30 employees. It's just their one man show. And they're presently thinking now, what's the thing that I could do that I could grow and build. Right. So we're on the same path. Yep. So point nine would be, let's tie back to what some of our, our, our goals for ourselves was when we were young people, wasn't it to create self-control and responsibility? So now that we have teens that are growing up into men and women, we are in an effort to make disciples. That's our goal for our children. We're looking for places for them to develop self-control and take on responsibility. So... We're, we, we should be willing to spend money on things that help to do this, that, that put good responsibility on them and develop self-control. So for instance, we would encourage our children to be having jobs. I really don't care what your financial position is. You should be looking for places for your children to have jobs, at least in the summer. If they're, let's say their school load is super huge. We should be looking for summer jobs for our teens. Why? Because it builds self-control and the capacity for responsibility. We've talked a lot about inheritance and handing off money, but it would be so stupid to raise a kid that didn't have any responsibility through his whole life, and then you expect to hand them $50 million when they turn 40 and think they're going to do a good job with it. No, you have to be developing self-control and responsibility in your children all along the way. And there should be stakes involved. It, there shouldn't be the assumption that, well, I know I get to drive a wonderful car that's all paid for, all the gas is paid for, all the insurance is paid for. Dad will take care of that. 
And if I'm interested, I might do a job at the Chick-fil-A, which by the way, have your kids have jobs at Chick-fil-A because they, because they'll develop skills that will serve them the rest of their life. They'll, they'll develop um, customer service skills at Chick-fil-A because that's what they do is develop people in those ways. You know, your kid could work at the corner snow cone place. There's some value in that, but look for places for them to work, not based on how much money they're going to get paid. That's not really the most important thing. It's what is being developed in them, whether it's customer service or they're learning IT skills or they're learning just how to be responsible. Well, they drive a delivery truck, delivering Cokes to vending machines. That's fine. Do they have a time schedule they have to hit? That's good. You know, we want to be developing these things. So look for opportunities, self-control and responsibility in your teens. Yeah. And if you need ideas specifically, go back to the archives and search for the episode called Apprenticing Your Kids or Apprentice Your Kids. We did a whole episode with a guy who had done a really good job of hiring his children out to different places in his community uh, where they got different experiences. That's and right. I thought it was full of good ideas. Yeah. And I also wanted to mention an old episode called The Great Commission at Home, which is just a it's just an overview. It's it's one of the worst audio episodes we've ever done. It was me in a gigantic room with a I think it was a phone that was recording on a tabletop and it sounds terrible, but it's an overview of just the whole mission of making disciples out of your children. And that if you think that making your child into a disciple is a goal, then obedience is a non-negotiable. They have to learn obedience. Similarly, they'd have to learn self-control and responsibility because we have a father, a heavenly father, who wants to hand us the kingdom. And if we don't have self-control and the ability to handle responsibility, he shouldn't hand it to you because, well, this is the whole lesson about money is that if you can't be trusted to take care of something as as meaningless and temporal as money, why would he hand you something eternal like the the administration of his word or the souls of other human beings when you've proven that you can't hold a dollar in your hand without burning it? So the, I think those are important kind of vision vision casters for the way that we raise our children into adult disciples. Yeah. So we're going to hit point number 10 now, and I'm going to give you a warning, listener. Oh boy. This is the last super meaty point, and then 11, 12, and 13, we'll, we'll give you those and we'll be done. 10 is a big one to me, which is that as your kids get ready to marry with your participation and blessing, mm-hmm. give them space to develop their own rhythms and vision, but... Remain close enough that your guiding influence is available to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so this there's there's four big things that come to mind here. One, you've you've got to be flexible in this stage of life. You know, I can't tell you how many grandparents have just killed it, have have nailed these these first nine steps up to this point, and then they shrug their shoulders and go, well. Well, our kids moved away, so I guess we'll be seeing them three times a year now. Oh, well, I guess it's over now. Yeah. You build resources so that you can go to where they are. If you have to sell your amazing you know, home in the suburbs that you love and buy two condos or three condos in different places, Do um, it. I think that's a good trade. Uh, you, you might need to own a couple of locations or... You might not, not need to own a home at all. And the, I think people assume that the default is, well, my kids made a choice and they're they're gone now. And I guess I'm going to fill my days with X, Y, or Z. Um, that is not how my wife and I will be operating if mm-hmm. our kids move all across the globe. Um, I, at the same time, believe that if you've done all of these steps up to a point, Hopefully, you've built a family that has some gravitational pull so that um, there is some desire either to live nearby or if the Lord has sent your kids for very specific things, uh, to be extremely eager to come come back around frequently. Um, I I just go back to the grandparenting episode and 
yes. he talks there about how he relates with children who live in town and how he stays in touch and is very intentional and regularly um, working with his family who doesn't live in town. So there's ways to do it, but you know, I must throw out to people who haven't heard it that Mimi lives in Cincinnati. She has a son, daughter-in-law and grandchildren in Chicago, and they have made it a point. They're going to spend a weekend with those people every month. And they have done that. And that's huge because they because this is a priority and they've made financial sacrifices to make sure that it happens. Second thing I would say here is be on track to own a home outright by the time you're in your mid to late 50s. So that's tricky because you think, well, the 30 year mortgage is pretty normal and I, I got enough money to buy a house when I was 40. I'm actually not saying that you need to get a 15 year mortgage if you're 40 and buying your first house. But you should be thinking about accumulating resources such that you could pay off that mortgage right. by the time you're about 55 in, in an ideal world. And the reason for this isn't so that you can just park your butt in that house and die there. Uh, it actually, having a paid off home gives you additional flexibility. Well, I could rent this home out. What if my kids move across the country and I just wanted to uh, to have the flexibility to rent this home out and go there for a year and just see? I don't know if they're going to stay in Washington, D.C. or not, but... Yep. You know, and by the time you're in your 50, mid 50s, most people are not quite ready or even financially ready to be done earning income. So this isn't assuming that, hey, we're going to retire at age 50 and just roam around the country grandparenting. But this is a good target for me to, to set for yourself as you think about home buying and even how much house should we buy? Is it going to take every scrap of penny to pay that mortgage payment every month? Or is it going to be very comfortable and I'm going to be able to put some aside and, and accumulate some wealth? Great. Why don't you cover these last two points? Because they're kind of personal stories of yours too. Okay. You know, one of the best times to set your position in stone with your adult children is when they have kids. I mentioned it earlier, but we watched my sister's flock of children last week while she was having a new baby. And like I said, I, I thought this was really hard and I'm going to have to mentally prepare to do so much of this when my kids are, are beginning to have their own babies. And unfortunately, I think it's pretty rare that a grandparent in our culture drops everything and says in that key moment, which is especially the first time, but really every time that there's a new baby goes, I am going to handle a large chunk of the hard labor that comes with this. I will be making meals. I will be watching the other kids and stuff like that. And Lord willing, if I'm in a place physically and I'm capable of doing that, my hope is when there's a new baby, we drop what we're doing and we are at the service of that family mm-hmm. in as much as, as, as we are received in that way and able to help. So I expect to be going through a little bit of that fog of war myself as a grandparent and not leaving it to my kids. I, I think this is a time to show we are an asset to you and we are here to, to actually further and make you go, well, we can have more babies that we've got help. The idea that you were supposed to do infant raising as a couple and, and like a nuclear family. And that that was just how God designed it is absurd. You are supposed to do that in the context of a community that is generally your family. Yeah. That is there to help you with all the really difficult stuff that comes with tiny children. So take that opportunity and use it. Um, the last thing I was thinking about on this one, I asked a client the other day, I said, financially, when you think about your life so far, what would have been the biggest impact moment in which a financial gift or some help 
maybe from your parents would have changed your world for the better. And the reason I was asking that question is this, this family wanted to set a goal to help their children and they were a young family. So this is way out in the future, but wanted to set a goal to help their children uh, financially. And they're not mega rich. We're not talking about multi-generational wealth uh, at this stage in the game, but they do want to be faithful with some money to, to help get their kids started. And I think this is a very good question to ask and then to save towards whatever the answer is. So it could be a house down payment. You know, that used to be a pretty achievable gift for parents to help with when a house down payment was $15,000 in some parts of the country. Now a house down payment might be $200,000. That's that's a little trickier. But, you know, for a lot of families, it could be, hey, private school is really expensive. Is there any way that we could, you know, we're trying to navigate how to pay this for our own kids, but could we already in our 30s start thinking about putting a little bit aside so that our children, maybe we can't pay for all of it, but they're going to have an easier time because we're going to help alleviate one of the burdens that was really hard on us when we were in that phase of life. Yep. It could be something totally different, but so often with inheritance, you see families that hand over $2 million to their kids when they die and the kids go, this is great, but I'm kind of set. I'm, I'm 60 now. And great. I would have, I would have, it would have been world changing to get $40,000 when I was 31 and we had just had our first baby. And so that's, I think that's worth, worth thinking about. Um, you can even use how you do this to, again, not in a manipulative way, but create some of that gravitational pool uh, yep. for the family. Hey, there's, you know, housing available here in, in Utah where I live. And I've already told my kids, I am working to set up a, a situation where there's a house for you if you guys need a place to live when you're newlyweds. And that's the type of transfer I would like to make because it's really stinking expensive where we live. And I could see it being almost prohibitive to my daughter if they get married and want to start a family in Salt Lake City. It used to be affordable. It's not anymore. So that's something we're trying to solve. So we're talking our way through your children having children you're moving into that grandparent role is this big pivot that happens when you're we're thinking when your children are in the 50s to 55 threshold when your children have stable built families maybe maybe they've just paid off their home perhaps that would be nice if they had and you're in the stage where well your your physical capability is declining Um, your ability to have a full schedule is declining. And this is a really important thing. What many patriarch families, and again, I'm thinking of our people who are probably the first in their line to take on family building uh, and and to think through it and being as intentional as we encourage, probably the first ones to do that. You might've had godly parents as I have, but didn't think didn't think multi generationally in the way that we talk about it now. And you're building this family line. There's going to come a point when it's time for you, and and you have to think about this beforehand because you might not want to do it when the time comes. But you have to have planned for it and thought through it. There comes a time when you actually need to hand the reins of family leadership, that patriarch role hand it off to your children. And actually you, you stop being the person who, for instance, hosts the Passover meal. Maybe, maybe, but you don't think of yourself as I stand up at Passover and I take it, but you become the support to your children. And they are now, they now take this patriarch role. And I think a lot of things pivot at that moment that you have to think through and the things that you're talking about, Mark, already are setting this up, which is I'm willing to move house to support them. I might move into a smaller house to support them. Um, I'm, I got to make myself available time and resource wise. 
And now we need to fully um, divest ourselves of, of the really godly, honorable, wonderful position of family leader. You hand that off to your child. I also believe that in these years, if the relationship between father and son is as strong and dependable and trustworthy as it should be, ideally, this is also a time when you're starting to hand over family wealth to that younger generation to carry it. And instead of you being the, the caretaker of all of those things, everything moves down a generation and you're modeling for the generations. This is how a family leader acts, is that you don't hold on until the very end. There's this terrible story. We've, we've referenced this book, Family Fortunes, by Bill Bonner a couple of times. There's this terrible story of this, this patriarch who created this huge business. And when he was like 80-something, he was finally ready to hand it off to his sharp daughter, who had, who had been the kind of the, the leader of the family vision to her and her husband. And he was like, I'm ready to make you the executive of the board now. And she was like, Dad, I, we've developed our own lives at this point. We, we've got our stuff going on. We can't take on this thing that you built. He should have handed it off 15 years earlier, at least, and then been there to support and, and uh, mentor until the day that he died. But he waited too long. And so we have to hand those things off earlier. So just to kind of wrap up the last couple of points, A, everything you're saying is stuff that we we discussed a little bit on uh, the episode called It's a Sin Not to Retire. So I would recommend checking that one out if you yeah. want to hear us opine more about transitioning into a phase of life where your your main role is support. and then. Again, just to put some tangible things this might look like, you want to have a home where everyone can come around the table for Passover. Um, you know, one of the things we wrote when we did our family vision summit was we want our kids to be building sukkahs uh, when they're adults. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people have that. I think a lot of people have that vision that have never really thought multi-generationally of Hey, I want my grandkids to all sit down at my table when I'm 80. I think the pivot here is this doesn't have to be your primary residence that right. this table exists in. This could be your shared home with your kids. It could be your kids' home. Uh, and, you know, we've had the idea that we have this could be house. The family vacation home in Eden. It could be this home right here. We could be eating one of the wild turkeys that keeps walking by the window. Yeah. You know, we've had the idea that we could live in a one-bedroom condo at age 65 and give away our houses to the kids. And that would be fine. Uh, we would still have a table uh, where everyone could come together. And if all my kids were living within a mile of each other, then I'm I'm absolutely happy to make that trade off. So having a home where everyone can come around the table for Passover is a big yes. Needing that to be your primary residence, not important. Yep. And then the last point that I think maybe gets overlooked uh, by people the that are thinking this way is you, if you want to if you want to see all this stuff and realize this, this path, you actually have to invest now to keep yourself spiritually, emotionally, and physically fit so that you can meet your great-grandchildren and help them do everything we've talked about. So it, it really helps multi-generational family to live a long time. Now, we are like we talked about the longevity doctor, I think the Lord laughs when we say, well, I'm doing all this. I'm definitely living to a hundred. No, <laughs> you're living into the very moment that the Lord has ordained. Yeah. But I do think that there's a role that we have, even in, if we don't talk about the day your heart stops beating, but just the quality of life you're able to have. Um, you know, uh, we can't get through an episode without at least a couple deadlift uh, encouragements, but I think a guy should be training with weights in their 30s so that they can uh, pick up a, a little kid when they're 80. 
sort of like what we were talking about earlier. Yeah. And the emotional and, you know, emotional fitness is another one where I, I really do think that is partly that training the muscle of discomfort that we get really pretty good at exercising when we have two-year-olds. Yes. And it totally, in my case, it has pretty much already vanished when I when I noticed how uncomfortable I got trying to take care of two-year-olds again. So yep. I'm like, okay, good, good check-in, time to um, find a place where I can change some diapers on a, on a more regular basis now. Yep. Um, so grandparents take grandparents, please keep reading your Bibles and having time prayer time with God. Please stay sharp spiritually. If you're grandparenting age, please take young people out to lunch. I know it's uncomfortable and you have to listen to them talk and maybe you don't care about everything they're saying, but you got to stay relationally sharp, be a giver, be somebody who can emote with other people please take the time to do crosswords or whatever things keep you mentally fit instead of just vegging out in front of a television. Our American culture says that's all that an old person is good for is sit them in front of a television and then change their diapers when they need it. That is not what the Bible says about old people. So you're supposed to be a storehouse of wisdom. And I'm sorry if you're not valued in this culture, you might have to do some uh, initiating. And you might have to go find some 25 year olds so that you can start taking them out to lunch, listen to them, and then earn the right to speak into their life and, and give them some wisdom. We want you to keep all of those muscles fit instead of atrophying. And then you're handed a four-year-old uh, grandchild or a great-grandchild and you go, what, what am I supposed to do with this thing? That is not our vision. That is not the way we want to go. So if you're of that age now, we want you to to, to uh, stay active. If you're my age now, I want this to be your vision so that you think long-term, I'm going to stay giving, I'm going to stay engaged, and I'm not going to just rot and, and echo away into the distance. That's not what we're about. And if the, the best way I know to make this possible, is especially in family life, is to demonstrate it when you're not in the old person's seat. So let your kids see you doing your darndest to honor the older people in your Amen. family. My kids see us go to great effort and, and often against their will, uh, the yes. will of, of the elderly folks to bring them in and put them at our table and ask them questions and even in cases where those people are like, I would rather just watch the TV right now. Yes. We're, we're like, Hey, great grandma, we need, we need to hear some things from you. And I think that sets you up better than, than just saying, well, when I'm old, I'm going to be holding court, uh, with my family. Maybe, but probably <laughs> not if you haven't des developed that pattern in your family uh, over many years. Yeah. Great. Well, that's it. That's the, that's the critical path to Abrahamic greatness. And, and my massive caveat I have to put on, I know you said this at the beginning, I have to say it again, because I know that this comes up in people's minds. My massive caveat is that we're talking about an ideal. If we could shape a life from beginning to end, this, this would be our recommendations. We know that everybody, everybody, they, they have all sorts of life crashes that happen along the way. We know that nobody's life is perfect. It doesn't work out the way that we plan. We just wanted to throw this out as an ideal, specifically again for a young man who would say, now what are the, what are the big moments in life I should be looking out for? And how do I posture myself spiritually, financially, relationally to be able to capture these important moments? So we just wanted to lay that out as a kind of plan, a, a game plan for, for all of our folks. You know, I haven't thought about it until just now, Stephen, but we've often talked with all this blog content and stuff we've produced over the years about it'd be fun to to produce a bound book uh, on, yes. on the Abraham's Wallet lifestyle. I feel like this is this is really what you're you're going for is in a perfect world. Here are the here is the path to walk if you're trying to manage your home and your dough in a biblical fashion. So yeah. 
yeah, this is our this is our baby is trying to get people wherever you are on this path. You'll notice how many of our episodes we're we're referring to because this is what we're doing is that we want to hit people along this path all the way because this is the, this is the story of building a, a multi-generational family for God. Yeah, so we uh, we appreciate you guys bearing with us. This was a, a haul, but I hope that this is a this and the previous episode are ones that you can go back and actually reference over time and maybe just check in on. Well, I think I think I might be at point number right. seven. What's point number eight? What should I be thinking about next? So uh, we love to hear from people. Um, Mark at abrahamswallet.com is my email. And Steve, you you now have an Abraham's Wallet email too, right? Yes. Steve at abrahamswallet.com. So I, that probably just ended the, the chances of me getting emails, but you can, you can email either of us. And we love to hear from you if you guys have thoughts, questions. Hey, we totally forgot a step, whatever. Um, yeah. We might, even, we might even read it right here on Abraham. That's true. Bless you guys as you build your Abrahamic families. And uh, thank you, Mark, for your time. Have fun in Eden, Utah. See you next week. Bye.